0: let's open our bibles to luke chapter 3 we're continuing our way through this wonderful gospel of the life and ministry of jesus christ and the title of our study today is prepare the way there are two major parts to the message and ministry of john the baptist if you've studied his life a little then you're probably familiar with these first was repentance we're going to see this in the scriptures that we look at today it was repentance that prepared the hearts of people to receive the long-awaited Messiah. God absolutely demands repentance. Without it, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness of sins. This is a major part of the believer's path to true, genuine salvation. The second major component to John's message was an expectation, an eager longing For the arrival of the Messiah. The more that I've studied the the message and the ministry of John the Baptist, the more drawn I am to the precision and the inspiration of his message. Repentance and an eagerness to see Jesus Christ. My prayer is that we will recognize the critical necessity of those for us today. Let's pray again and then we'll study our text. Heavenly Father, would you be so good as to open our eyes to see you, to see truth, divine, unchanging truth that guides us through this very complex and difficult life. Lord, help us to see you and to be doers, worshipers, of all you say and reveal. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, Luke 3, follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Let's pause there for just a second. We won't get into who all of these political and religious leaders were. You can do a little research digging on your own. But let me ask this. Does the Bible care about details? Absolutely. Facts matter. And Luke was zealous for details in his historical record of the life and ministry of Jesus. He was zealous for rock-solid truth. Facts matter because they substantiate the truth claims. As we can see here, the setting, the precise time in world history, and the exact persons were all key details in this specific world-changing account of John the Baptist preparing the way for the arrival of Messiah. Verse 3, it says, And he came into all the district around the Jordan, Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. That's where we get the title for our study this morning. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. These are incredible prophetic words. Now, to be sure, verse 3 here is not leading us to believe that people were being forgiven of their sins by John's baptisms. Context and the verses ahead are most certainly going to show us that he was preaching of a salvation about to come. And, of course, the whole New Testament silences the thought that salvation is given by anyone but Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So in the verses ahead, we're gonna see that John was baptizing people in light of, in faith-filled affirmation of, in looking forward to the perfect salvation that was about to arrive on the world scene. Matthew 3.3 records John specifically saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself echoed those words. Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was preparing the way. He himself was not the way. He was preparing it. He was preparing the hearts of men and women to receive the gospel of the kingdom that was about to come. And how does one prepare their heart to receive such salvation? Repentance. The Greek word for repent literally means to turn. It is a total turn. In spiritual matters, this repentance refers overwhelmingly to a whole being turning from sin to God. The Bible Bible teaches this, that a person cannot love sin, they cannot love that which is evil and, and love and accept and pursue that which defies the person and commands of God and still be saved. As you study the New Testament gospels and the epistles, it is abundantly clear that repentance is mandatory for salvation to be received turning and running from our former manner of living, that life where self was God and sin was acceptable. Now, let's address the elephant in the room. Does this mean we are saved by our good works, our turning from sin? When we turn from sin and pursue God, does that save us and forgive us of all our sins? I mean, these are important questions. We've got to ask them. And when we have questions like this, well, what do all of the scriptures teach? They teach that we are not saved by our own works of righteousness, which would include repentance, turning from sin, pursuing God. Ephesians 2.8.9 makes this abundantly clear. We are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He gave his own life. He was the spotless lamb of God. He alone pays the eternal penalty for our sins. That's why salvation is so great. We are not just talking about a better life here and now. We are talking about a pure and perfect and wonderful, sin-free, curse-free life with God forever. I mean, could we possibly discuss weightier matters in the house of God? Here's the fine line on this. Our repentance does not save us. God simply saves those who repent. Are you with me on that? Our turning from sin does not save us. God just saves those who repent. He does all the saving. He does all the choosing. And He chooses those who repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Apart from the saving power of God, think about this, apart from Jesus Christ, you and I could repent and turn from every last possible sin we can find in the deepest corners of our hearts and still go to the place of eternal judgment and unfathomable suffering with Satan and all those in darkness. But hallelujah, God's saving grace sweeps in through the work of Christ on the the cross of Calvary and he gives us the faith to believe. He moves through that faith to rescue forever those who repent and believe in his son. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another theological application elephant in the room. What if we still sin? I mean, who hasn't asked that question? We all still sin. In such cases, which applies to all of us, I give you the commands of Scripture repent, turn from your sins. Only now we don't repent to be saved because we're already saved. We're already adopted into the household of God. We looked at that at our our informal family camp here the past few days. The theory of unadoption is nowhere to be found in the Scriptures. Praise God. God says, no man can pluck you out of my hand. We don't continue as believers, as children of God, we don't continue to repent to be saved We repent and turn from sin because we have been saved. Do you understand this? Confession and repentance are some of the assurances of our salvation. They are the evidences that God is truly in us and still working in us. If we have sin that we refuse to turn from, then yes, we should fear for our salvation. We should test and carefully consider our faith and whether it is biblical. I don't doubt that every single one of us here believes something. The question is do we believe what the Bible says must be believed to be saved? Of course I can't tell you if you're saved or not. You can't tell me of my own faith. Interestingly the Bible doesn't say if you only commit that sin once per week And not once per day, you can still be saved. Because what would people do? What is in the heart of humanity? We would sin once per week. That is legalism. That is the letter of the law. My church family, we must all repent and run from what we know the Bible calls sin. The attitudes and the thoughts of the heart and mind the words and the actions of our bodies that do not please God. We repent and we run from what the Bible calls sin because we are children of the Most High God. Those who believe will repent. Those who repent and believe will be saved. Praise God for the assurance of our salvation in Christ Jesus through grace, through faith, through repentance. Much, much more could be said on this point. I encourage the SALT groups to talk about this in their meetings this week. Ask the hard questions. Search the scriptures and be assured of your salvation and Your sanctification, your spiritual growth. But let's look now at verses 4 to 6 in light of biblical repentance. This is Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. There are selections from Handel's Messiah that come from Isaiah 40. If you read through the chapter, you'll probably hear the tune going. I'm telling you, if you want to worship the Lord in His majesty and realize how small humanity is in the light of him then read all of chapter 4 Isaiah I, Isaiah 40 and then notice at the end of the chapter how personal to you and me the greatness of God extends i mean that's that's the we stand in the magnificence of God and then we realize and he is good to us it is killing me not to read that whole chapter right now but time doesn't allow I'm telling you, when I get to heaven, I'm going to get to preach all the three-hour sermons that I want. <laughs> Meanwhile, God is sparing all of us. Verse 4, as it is written, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. We can't understand and appreciate this Old Testament text here without some biblical historical commentary. Let me read these brief notes from the MacArthur Study Bible. Quoted from Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5. A monarch traveling in wilderness regions would have a crew of workmen go ahead to make sure the road was clear of debris, obstructions, potholes, and other hazards that made the journey difficult. In a spiritual sense, John was calling the people of Israel to prepare their hearts for the coming of their Messiah. Isn't that an incredible metaphor for leading people to Christ? The historical intent of this scripture is to prove that John the Baptist was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. You remember, prior to John the Baptist's prophecy, there was 400 years of what? Silence. God had not spoken directly to humanity. He had not spoken anew to any of the prophets for 400 years. And then John the Baptist shows up on the scene. So, the historical intent of this, of this text proves that John the Baptist was fulfilling these prophecies of old, thus, authenticating even further the life and the ministry and the claims of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Lamb of God come to bear the sins of the world. You better authenticate that kind of claim. This authentication is invaluable and it compels us to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe the good news that he proclaimed. We looked at this two weeks ago when we looked at all of chapter 2 together. But we would fall short of the benefits of this text If we were to assume that it is only there for authentication and historical purposes, we would fall short because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know these verses, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Every verse in Scripture is recorded, not just for our head and mind knowledge, but for the heart knowledge, for life change, particularly so that we can grow in our faith to become more like Christ and to be equipped to do every single good work He calls us to in this life. One of the personal lessons and application that I am so moved by in this text is that we have a responsibility to follow John's example of leading people to Christ. To help prepare the way for them to repent and believe. To remove the obstacles, to do all we can to remove the valleys and the hills that get in their way. And even to do this for one another in our own spiritual growth our sanctification, our pursuit of Christ-likeness through the trials and blessings of life. I want you to note that there are seven questions, seven sermon questions in your bulletin, a number of which are dedicated to this very topic. How can we help remove obstacles in other people's hearts and minds? Obstacles so that we can prepare the way of the Lord to meet them, for them to meet the Lord. There's so many ways we can do this whether it be through gathering to worship like this, through, through Bible studies, through hospitality, through kindness when it really costs. As Enrico mentioned, it's it, through service here in the church. Do you understand that when we gather and when we serve in this place, or in the first service, I had, had the opportunity to do the prayer time, and I just thank God for the many people who serve in this place. They are preparing People's hearts to receive the word of the Lord without distraction, without obstacle. They clean the floors. They clean the toilets. They cut the grass. They keep the the building running. Why? They are preparing the way of the Lord. Preparing hearts to meet the Savior and to grow in Him. How I thank God for the many hands serving in this place and beyond it. But let us be very, very clear and true to the text here. It was the call to repentance that primarily prepared the heart to receive God himself, the Messiah. You and I can be a good testimony to our neighbors, and we should. We can answer lots of Bible and theological questions, and we should. We could even invite people to believe, and we should. But if these things are all not also leading to the call to repentance, think about this, even belief will be insincere in its biblical definition. The believing heart must and will repent. How do you know you're saved? One of the evidences is a constantly repenting heart. A life that is constantly growing in the faith and turning from sin. I don't know how to say this more plainly, more clearly, more obviously than what scripture says. Cease from sin, turn to righteousness, turn to God. This is the life calling of every believer, every child of God. This is the life of the redeemed, this side of heaven. Don't you wish that evil would cease in this world? It begins in your heart and mine. On a side note, one of the tragedies of the modern church, and and I suspect all throughout the past 2,000 years, but we see it today because we're living in it, one of the tragedies of the modern church is their overemphasis on belief to the minimization and de-emphasis of repentance. I know many of you would agree. The Scriptures agree. Just read them. Repentance is a major theme of the pathway to salvation and to sanctification, spiritual growth. Matter of fact, if we go all the way to the end of the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 24, Verses 46 and 47, you'll find these words from Jesus to his disciples after his death and resurrection. He said this, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is the Great Commission. Of course, our minds often go to Matthew 28 and and the Great Commission there to go make disciples and to baptize and to teach them everything Christ commanded. And our minds rightly go there. But we have to understand that a big part of that Great Commission is what Luke also recorded the call for the people of God to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins to all the nations. Friends, it's not a popular proclamation but it is a life-saving one. That's why we do it. Friend, if you're not a Christian yet, but you are considering it, then be very aware that Jesus Christ himself calls you to turn from sin, from the evil that is in your own heart and your own life, the evil that is in my own heart and my life, I must turn from. All that he defines as wickedness You see, if we confess Jesus as Lord, as Matthew 10, 9 says, that means we confess him as our ruler, our master, our king. That means we let him decide what is good and what is evil, what is true and what is false. And a true believer will spend the rest of their life studying the scriptures to see what God says is sin. In the most finite deepest portions of our heart, we let God define what is good and what is not. And we pursue this knowledge so that we can run from what he says is sin. And of course, we study what is good and righteous and right so we can turn to it. Not as a matter of legalism, not as a matter of earning our salvation, but as a matter of worship and loving and serving Our Lord, the one who died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins in full. This is the beauty of the Christian life. Finish this. We don't have to do what's right. We get to do what's right. Because we are saved forgiven, we have been set free from the bondage and the curse of sin and evil, and the grace of God now gives us the strength we need to do what is right, to be holy even as he is holy, the scripture says. This is the life pursuit, the devotion of the true follower of Jesus Christ. Verses 7 to to, uh, 9, So John began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Definitely not politically correct, would you agree? You bunch of poisonous, slithering snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't forget that phrase. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is part of the life mission of the believer. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Man, John the Baptist had a way of saying it like it is. He goes on, verse nine. Indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. My church family, we must examine our heart and our faith. Do you see in your heart and life a wealth of good fruit that is in line with the true spirit of repentance? Good fruit, biblical fruit, pure and holy fruit that is a result of knowing and loving and serving the God who saved you or is your tree barren? If it's barren or largely barren, then yes, fear for your salvation. But do not be paralyzed by fear. Fear God and repent of sin. I have to tell myself this often. Fear God and repent of sin. Turn from sin and obey the Lord our God so that the fruit of the Spirit, we studied that a little while back in Galatians 5, so that the fruit of the Spirit will become manifest, and you hear me on this, so that you need no longer fear whether you will be cut down and thrown into the lake of fire. uh, Revelation. 21 5-8 the scripture records prophetically what will happen at the end of the age at the end of the world it says and he who sits on the throne said behold i am making all things new do you look forward to that day (laughs) behold i am making all things new and he said right for these words are faithful and true then he said to me it is done I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. That is salvation. That is what Jesus offers you and me. He has offered forgiveness of sin and he paid the whole price himself. It goes on, verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. When I get to heaven, if that's all I hear, I have heard enough. When the Father looks at me and says, I am your God and you are my son. Oh, how I look forward to that day. Verse 8, but the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Part of my biblical job description as a pastor, as a minister of the word, is to extend God's loving call to repent of your sins and run from this second eternal death and into the arms of eternal life, God, Jesus Christ himself. That's the invitation of the gospel. Have you ever in your life heard a better offer? Back to Luke 3, verse 10. Look at where this goes. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. That's such an interesting text, isn't it? I would not have expected those to be the words out of John's mouth. If we summarize what John just said, we see that he gave three imperatives, three commands for repentant living. Stop being selfish, stop stealing, and stop using your authority to abuse others under you. Now, I believe it would be a mistake for us to not see the forest for the trees here. The point is not in the three rebukes. It is in the whole of the rebukes. Stop sinning. That was John's answer. Repent. Turn from the sins you know you are doing. And for us today, when we sin, repent quickly and run back to the Savior in loving obedience and worship. There is a wrath to come, my church family. The axe is going to fall. It is already laid at the roots of the tree, the scripture says. And those who do not repent are going to be thrown into the fire. This is the word of God. Verse 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to to whether he was the Christ. I mean, pause there for a second. I'm telling you, that raises the bar for preaching like no other. He preached and they wondered, man, is this the Messiah himself? That must have been some preaching. Now, actually, that must have been some message. The power is in the message, not the messenger. Look at the, uh, verse 16, look at the humility of John. And John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If you are interested in what tomorrow holds and care even one ounce for your life, then study and find out what those words mean that we just read. Those are incredible words. I love John's clarification here in verse 16. It's not the water that you need. It is the Holy Spirit. It's not me who can save you. It's the Messiah who needs to spiritually baptize you with himself, immerse you into himself, overwhelm you, identify you. And again, John's humility, which is simply his right and proper view of himself in light of uh, Almighty God. Again, read Isaiah 40. John's humility here is exemplary. He rightly pointed out that Christ is mightier, mightier than him. But how much? He says, so mighty, I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. Now, appreciate that we have to put ourselves in first century shoes. I'm sorry, no pun intended there, but Everybody walked in the dry dirt and the sand in that region of the world. Feet were pretty much always dusty and dirty. Sandals were always dirty. There were no bleach white Nike basketball shoes in the church. No preachers' sneakers for everyone to admire, right? The feet and sandals were dirty, and it is of these dirty sandals worn by the Messiah that John says, I am not even worthy to untie them, to even loose them from his feet. Pastors, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, deacons, elders, that is how we should see ourselves in ministry, amen? If you study the ministry of John and the other gospels, you see, particularly in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, where, where John the Baptist says, speaking of Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. What a theme to live by. In a sense, John wasn't being humble or noble. He was just being honest with who God was and who he was. I am nothing. God is everything. You know one of the one of the beautiful things we learn through the rest of scripture is that it's the God who is everything that makes me his own and that makes me something. That's what we call our identity in Christ. If you are a follower of Christ a born again believer then you are a child of God and that makes you infinitely valuable. Oh, the honor and the privilege, the wealth of being sons and daughters of the Almighty. Look at verse 18 as we wrap up here. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. I love that. Just keep preaching. Christian friend, I don't know where this finds you today. Maybe you've got a friend. Maybe you've got a family member, a co-worker who you're trying to reach for Christ, who you're trying to to, to encourage to do what's right. You're trying to help prepare the way for them, and it just doesn't seem to be working. I encourage you to follow John the Baptist's example. Just keep lovingly sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, John was a bold man. We're going to learn about this later. When he was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, And because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. That's a sermon for another day. Doing what's right won't necessarily give you and I a comfortable life. 11 of the 12 apostles died for their obedience as a matter of worship because they saw something beyond this life. What about us? Are you and I living in the spirit of repentance? Would our spouse agree to this? Would our children affirm, oh yes, my father. I learn repentance through his example. My mother taught me the beauty of repentance. The rewards of of repentance. The loving worship of turning from sin to God because we love him. Secondly, are we looking forward to the return of Christ? We get to talk about this much. But Christ is coming back. Are you and I preparing our hearts To be ready for his return. Are you and I devoted to preparing the hearts of others so they too can meet him in salvation and meet him when he returns? This is what we have been called to. This is our joyful mission. Oh, that God will pour out his blessing upon us. His power. As we purpose to do what he has called us to do so that we can be instruments in his hands and have the joy of seeing the power of God flow through us for eternal good. And isn't it just awesome that God invites us to be part of what He, the Almighty, is doing in the hearts of people? What an incredible reward. Oh, it will be worth it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We love Your Word. Who else has spoken truth like this to our lives? Who else offers forgiveness of sin and the power to overcome it? The power to do what's right? The privilege and the power of knowing you and being known by you. To call you our Father and to hear you call us your child. Oh, Lord, we are so blessed. If there is even one or two or three here, Lord, who do not have this relationship with you, I pray, Lord, that they would open your word and find your truth, that they would reach out to someone here in the church family and say, can you show me what they were talking about this morning? I want to know more. I want to know Jesus. I want that hope, that forgiveness, the beauty that I see in the word of God. Lord, for those of us here who have it, oh Lord, help us to recognize how great you are and how obligated in the most beautiful and pure way we are to continue to, re- to repent and turn from sin and to turn to you more and more every day until Christ returns. Lord, would you prepare our hearts? Help us to be instruments who prepare the hearts of those around us to meet Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done, are doing, and will do. We love you and thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.